Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of How to Wow, starring Rick Astley, and brought to you by MS Plant Kitchen. M&S Plant Kitchen launched in 2019 when their first vegan-friendly range took the meat-free world by storm. Exactly. And now, my friends, there are 100 Plant Kitchen products to choose from, which is excellent news for my family. As back in March, my wife, Tequila Tash, and I decided to go all in plant-based. We were in Los Angeles running our very own made-up marathon as we were due to run the Tokyo Marathon, which was cancelled due to, well, you know what. But we'd done the training, I'd booked the time off work, and we had arranged, we had arranged extensive international childcare. You see, the thing is, eating plant-based in California has traditionally been much more of a thing than here in the UK. But that's all changing, and changing at a pace. Da-da-da! Introducing the M&S Plant Kitchen. No chicken nuggets. They look like chicken. They smell like chicken. They're finger-licking like chicken, and they taste like chicken. At least as far as I can remember. It's been a while. But hey, don't take my word for it. Cut to my second eldest son, Eli, in the Evans Plant Kitchen. Eli, what's going on with the no chicken nuggets? Oh, they look like chicken, they smell like chicken, and they taste like chicken. Oh, they must be chicken. Oh, no, they're not chicken. Told you. And he's had actual chicken a lot more recently than me. But that story's for another day. Sticking with the no chuck chuck chicken now, there's also the delicious, and I mean mouth-meltingly delicious No Chicken Kiev. M&S Plant Kitchen's most successful vegan launch ever, with one being sold every four minutes. There's probably one outside your window right now. Take a look. Largely because of their indulgent garlic filling waiting to explode in your mouth underneath that coating of crunchy golden breadcrumbs. I want one now. And then there's the kiddies' favourite Plant Kitchen cauliflower popcorn, which we paid our kids in to do this. Plant Kitchen! I think it could be a hit. Other scrummy treats include PK posh hot dogs, PK green Thai curry, and the to die for PK coleslaw salad, the first ever vegan coleslaw to hit supermarket shelves in the UK. Wow! Talking of wow, it's time now to How to Wow. Thank you, MS Plant Kitchen, for helping make this show happen. So, Rick, it's fair to say we were both quite excited about this chat. Indeed. I um, Obviously, we've talked, talked many times, but it's not, it's not the same as when you're on the radio, I don't think. It's a totally different experience because it's more like a chat, isn't it, really? So. Yeah, and you said you were a bit nervous? Yeah, I am. Um, I think because when you do interviews, or when I do interviews, I'm a bit more... It's not like I'm guarded exactly, but I'm aware of what's what I'm about to get involved in. And it's usually about promoting something. It's usually about a subject. You've got a record or a tour or what have you. And I do listen to podcasts myself, and I really, really like them. You know, And I think you actually get under the skin of somebody a little bit more. Do you know what I mean? So... And I don't know how far I want to go. <laughs> well, let's find yeah, out, yeah, we'll, we'll shall find we? Out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was even talk of tissues. I didn't bring them up. You did. No, well, I can run and get paper tissues if I need to, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But why did you think you might need them? Because I've I've just noticed a couple of times that when I've got um, got into certain interviews, sort of lengthier ones and what have you, um, and also the fact that we're from the same neck of the woods, so... I think sometimes you can have a conversation with someone. Let's say 
you know, I've done something in America or what have you, and they don't have a clue where Newton Willows is, but I know you know exactly where it is. And somehow that makes it different. I can't explain why it just does. It just does, you know. I remember once, actually, we had lunch with um, our agent in America, and they took us to the Polo Lounge uh, at the what's it hotel in, in L.A., and it's amazing, that place. I Beverly think. Hills? Yeah, Beverly Hills, that's the one, yeah. And it's beautiful, that place. It's like, it's you know, it's like stepping back in time, and it's just gorgeous. Anyway, so we sat there, and under no circumstances am I expecting the head of music for William Morris to have a clue where Warrington is. <laughs> right. But um, he's a friend of Simon Moran's, and he goes way, way back with Simon doing gigs, and he knew exactly where Warrington was. He knew where Wigan was. He knew where all of that. And listen, I'm a sudden softy now, and I've been for 30-odd years, but I don't know. Something in that triggers memories of how it all started for me, I think, with music and, and, and life in general. You know, that's where my life started. And sometimes I think that it triggers things in me, I think, that, that make me yeah, maybe want to shed a tear or two. You mentioned Simon Moran. A lot of people don't know who he is. Let's, let's just, Sorry, yeah, of course. Let's just say who he is. Simon Moran is one of the loveliest people on the planet. Um, he's an amazing guy. He, he's a huge, huge music promoter in the UK. Um, does gigs in football stadiums on a regular, regular basis, but he also manages somehow to get to a 200-capacity venue to see a, a new band he's working with as well on the same night. I know you know him well as well, and he he, he just puts the effort in and the hours and the kind of... And I think he makes people understand that this is... It, it's more than just a business for him. I think it's a genuine passion and a love, you know what I mean? And I think if you... Again, he's from Warrington. Uh, here we go. That's the thing, because yeah. he's, he's actually our age as well. Yeah, we're all right. the same age. Yeah. And um, we're all from Warrington. It's yeah. quite bizarre. Yeah, and that's it. And, and there is a trigger in that. Um, I opened up for Take That uh, last year, and there was a slight trigger in that for me as well, because obviously um, the guys at Northern, obviously, but, but Gary in particular, you know, is, is from down the road, you know. And I just think because I had dreams when I was a kid, and I so I so wanted to make it in music, but it seemed... It's, I did believe that it was possible somehow, but I knew the odds were stacked against me because I'm from a little town in the middle of nowhere. And so when I ever see somebody else, like yourself, to be honest, I don't mean to be all sycophantic or anything, but the career you've got and you've had, you kind of think, wow, that takes something to do that. And, and coming from a small town, I sometimes think it makes it... I don't know if it makes it harder, but it, it makes... You've got to dream bigger, I think. You've just got to push it that extra bit, I think. Because um, I've been to London like twice in my life be before it all really kicked off. Do you know what I mean? I haven't really travelled anywhere. So I don't know. I think sometimes when when I get a bit romantic about being from a little pocket in the north, I think. I think that's what it is. And it brings up a lot of great memories, but it also brings up some really sad memories as well. So I think, it, like I say, I think it's a bit of a trigger really. So That's interesting. I mean, you've mentioned the word sad. Mm. Straight off the bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Um, what kind of sad memory? Well, because my childhood was not fantastic in the sense that my mum and dad got divorced when I, I was the youngest of four kids. They'd had a son um, way before I was born and before the next eldest, or next, uh, Lex's youngest, if you like, was born, um, who passed away because of meningitis when he was very, very young. So I never knew him. But that cloud was in our house. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't realise that, I was a child. I was very, very young. I didn't realise that every household didn't have that, didn't have that kind of thing hanging over it. Um, 
And I, I never used to speak about that in interviews, to be honest, because partly because I don't think I really acknowledged it. And also, I think because I didn't want to bring it up in, in interviews for my mum to have to reread and look at. And do you know what I mean? Um, and also, I didn't really share in that experience actually happening. I wasn't alive. But like I say, the, the, the aftermath was there. And I think that's partly probably why they broke up in the end. And they did have two more kids, myself and my brother, Mike. But I don't think they really ever got over it. And And so I think, you know, I just think... It's partly why I got into music, and it's like it's like a Hollywood cliche that, but it, but it's true. I got in the church choir, I got in every single school play, I got in anything I could because I wanted to get out of our house. That's the truth of it, and I, and it took me a while to realise that's what it was. Um, and I'm really great with my two brothers and my sister. Um, I can spend time with them doing anything, any at the drop of a hat, and not even no emotional kind of baggage to it. I don't think or anything like that. But I think when I think about my dad's passed away now, he passed away last year, and I think about my, my mum's still alive, and I kind of think what they had to deal with, um, I think as, a, as being a parent myself, obviously now for quite some time, I've just kind of thought it's just, I don't know really, it leaves emotional scars on them, which are then transcended, transported, trans whatever, trans something to you as well, even though I wasn't even alive, you know? And um, yeah, so... I don't know. I think I have sort of run away from Newton Willows a little bit, if I'm honest. I think I have. No, I get it. Um, funny enough, my wife, um, my wife's mum and dad had a had a a, a baby that that's, didn't make it. Right. And uh, that's why I know it's called Nicholas. Right. Noah and Nicholas Martin Evans. Right. Nicholas after Tasha's brother, mm. and Martin after my dad, and um, she thinks the same thing because her mum and dad are no longer together. Right. And she cites that as having always been an underlying issue. Yeah. Nobody's fault, but it just breaks people. I think, it, I mean, it's it possibly the worst thing to happen in a family situation. I mean, I'm sure people have, have you know, their own opinion of that and differences, but yeah, and I think it's, um, yeah, it's super tough. And I think it's, and again, we're going back a long time. You know, I was, I was, I think, four or five when they split up. So we're talking... 50 years and i think in that in that day and age i think it was i think less people split up then for sure so i was one of the only kids at school with divorced parents and that was a bit weird i think um so yeah so like i say that the my childhood and then what led to me getting into music i think is quite um sort of weighted i think in something else and i think i, I think I think that's one of the things I've kind of enjoyed. I've done a bit of therapy in my time, you know, when I kind of quit um, music in terms of having a record deal and, and doing all that shenanigans. Uh, I took a little time off and took a time away as well, obviously, and I'd had enough of it, and I'm sure people had had enough of me. And um, and I did some therapy, and uh, my wife and I did some therapy together as well. And I did look at some of these things and try and sort of understand them a bit more. And I think I'm better for it, if I'm honest, yeah. It's, it's, I find that amazing, to be honest, because, you know, first time round, um, yeah, 1987 to, to 92, um, Rick Asti, you know, won, if you like. Um, you were very guarded in interviews, you know. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's fine. That's mm. completely fine. Mm. You know, and also, also I wasn't hosting Desert Island Dis or anything. Mm. Like this, but it was, you were a very private person. Yeah. You know, and you couldn't be more open now. I mean, you know, we just kicked off with that. Yeah. You know, and it's like you want to talk about it. It's like... You know, because it's be it's better to talk about it. You feel lighter every time you say it. Yeah. Every time 
you know, every time you say it out loud, you know, um, you you feel, I don't know, more truthful maybe to yourself, whatever that may be. You know, you came back in 2016 with the album 50. We'll talk about that in a bit, mm. but it's it's that was a lighter that was a lighter album. You were a lighter person. You were. You, it wasn't a comeback. You're you were. It was, you've not had a comeback. You've had a second coming, and this time we've we've got the real you. And is that because you've got the real you back? Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And I think when I was approaching being 50 and I hadn't made a proper record for a long time, I wasn't really envisaging making an actual album and a record that I was going to go to a record label with. So we're sat there right now. I, I made that record in this room and I played everything. And it, it was me It was me doing my uh, garage project. So I didn't have to think about what the lyrics were and whether they'd really work on radio or what because I wasn't truly expecting to get it on radio because it's it's a tough old thing to do you know um I hoped I would of course I did and, I, and I'm not saying I was completely blind to the to the you know the process of making a record that I was trying to get close enough to something that could be on the radio but I think lyrically I just sang what I wanted to sing so the first line of that whole project is um See the tissues, here we go. Uh, when I was a boy, I saw my daddy crying at the steering wheel and oh, I felt so scared and I did and that happened and I can remember it and he was just having a breakdown. You know, I didn't see that as a child thinking, oh, my dad's having a breakdown. You just see the one guy who's supposed to be able to handle everything having a meltdown in the car and it, and it kind of, and I think those lyrics like that, I didn't consciously write them i just come in this room pick a guitar up sit at the piano do whatever and mumble to myself and then i very often record it in a very basic way and i listen back to the mumble and think you've just written some of the lyrics there we just have to refine them you know um so i am very very honest in the things that i write every now and again i might write a song that's just about trying to get someone to put their handbag down and have a dance but but very often there's a bit more in it than that you know and i think it's therapeutic and it's I just enjoy it. I just feel better for doing it, to be honest. Well, the truth is more interesting. Yeah, maybe so, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, yes. I mean, listen, I'm still a big fan of pop music, and, and even if the lyric is Moon and June and Spoon, I can still get off on that because I really... I can appreciate it, you know, especially... There's some great music around at the minute, I think. I think we've gone into a period where there's great vocalists... Some great, you know, if I'm going to say it, British vocalists as well, you know, because I think I've always tended to steer towards American soul a little bit in the way I've been influenced with my singing and what have you. But if you look at some of the people who've been just, you know, powering on through, you know, Adele, Sam Smith, um, obviously Rag and Bowman's got, you know, amazing voice as well. But some of the British artists that have conquered the world properly, like no messing around, conquered it. Uh, and they've done it with a great voice and a unique voice. And I think we went in the 90s and what have you, it was more about the track. Um, it wasn't, maybe some bands would, would would argue against that, obviously some of the more indie bands, but I think pop music was a bit weak, if I'm honest. I think the 80s for pop music was amazing, especially the middle part, I think. Um, but I think genuine commercial pop music, and I know that people don't like those terms, but I think is really, really super strong at the moment and that's been for a few years. It comes and goes, it's like the time, yeah. isn't it? It has yeah. to, it yeah. can't stay forever. So your dad got to hear that song then because he was still around. He was, I mean, I haven't actually, here we go, I haven't actually, I didn't speak to him for the last 25 years of his life because we fell out and we've, we, he fell out with all of us at different times as four kids and he fell out with all of us. 
And he's, he was just a very troubled man, I think. Um, and I really wished that I could have had a proper relationship with him, but I just didn't in the last 25 years of his life. And um, I kind of felt when our daughter was born, she's 28 now, and I kind of felt I'm just not going to put her through it because he was... I think he probably would have been diagnosed with something if he would have gone for a diagnosis, you know, but he just didn't. And, I mean, manic depressive, I'm obviously not trained in any of that, so I can't tell you, but I, I would put it in that sort of bracket. And I just thought, I'm not going to put our daughter through it, you know. And I think my brothers and my sister have felt like the same at times, and they've kept a bit more contact with him off and on. But I think they've all been through it at one time or another. So I'm pretty sure my sister might have played it to him, but I couldn't, I couldn't guarantee you that. Your sister's been very instrumental in your life, hasn't she? Yeah, she she she's 10 years older. Sorry, Jane, I know you won't thank me for that, but she is. Um, so obviously when I was four, five, and six, she was a teenager and and, and she... Because obviously, the, 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 sorry, I've, I've admitted something. One of the kind of more unusual things is that uh, we were all brought up... Well, we all lived in my dad's house, not my mum's. My mum went to live with um, her mum and dad, her, my granny and granddad. And they were only a mile away. And I saw my mum every single day. Um, I spent the weekends with my mum. So it wasn't like she was an absent mother in any way, shape or form. She just went through hell with my dad, basically. And, and I'm sure she was part of it. But anyway, they went through hell together, really. And I even had an instance where I saw them like in a physical thing where my dad was you know, trying to possibly strangle my mum. And I can remember that. Whether I can remember it, genuinely remember it now, but but I've kind of got that picture in my mind, if you know what I mean. And so I think my mum just couldn't couldn't be in the same building as him. And in fact, the only it's a bit heavy, this isn't it? <laughs> but the, the 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 only time I've ever seen them in the same building together since they got divorced was at my sister's wedding in the church. But my dad didn't go to the reception, but he went to the church to give her away. So that's the kind of sort of background that my parenting, you know, that that picture is what is what I've got really. And so and I, and we've all tried really hard, my brothers and my sister, really really hard to go the other way. And we're still with partners we've been with since we were pretty much kids, you know, like thirty years and a bit more. So, so talking about Morris, then that's your dad's name, isn't it? No, it's um, his real name is Horace, is but we everybody called him Ozzy. Yeah, he hated Horace, so everybody called him. Oh, so Ozzie. it wasn't Morris. No, Ozzie. sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> Morris, he would have loved Morris, I think. Maybe that was the <laughs> so issue. He hated Horace because I think he felt it was just so old-fashioned. I mean, I think yeah, it's a cool name. I think now. he could make a real big comeback, actually. Yeah. No, but everybody called him Ozzy. I don't think I ever actually. I, I think it was a surprise to me to find out he was called Horace at one point because right. everybody called him Ozzy. You know, um, and again, the, the the weird thing about it was is that. He was a real character. He he uh, he didn't make a lot of money, but he had a little business. It ended up the, the business ended up being a garden centre, and he always had cash. If you know what I mean, <laughs> wink wink. <laughs> and so he'd just come home with things. Like he 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 would. We weren't wealthy at all, but he had some money. And my sister Jane, um, who like I say, you know, she she was ten years older than me, and she sort of became not a mother figure exactly, but she definitely was the female figure in our house because she was the only female in the house. Brought music to you, though. Well, Definitely. She took me to gigs. Um, first ever gig? Uh, yeah, in, uh, first couple of gigs. Uh, we went to the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. Um, I think the first one, I think, was a band called Camel, a progressive rock band, um, <laughs> uh, which was amazing. Um, and frequently enough, years later, we were in Japan on tour and we were in an airport lounge and we were all going around the band and crew, right, tell us your first gig. 
And when I, we all stood up to do it, it was so bizarre. And I stood up, you know, I was about 23, 22 at the time. And I said, oh, it was Camel at the Free Trade Hall. And basically, two guys, Chris, who did sound, and the guy who was doing all our projection work, both jumped out of their seats and said, I did that tour. <laughs> and it was the weirdest thing, because they were like with this pop kid sort of doing whatever. And it, uh, yeah. Really and you were bizarre. 10 or something at Something the time? like that, yeah. What about the second gig? Uh, it was Super Tramp uh, with Joan Armour Trading supporting. Wow. And it was amazing. And, Where was and, that? Uh, I think it might have been the free trade all again because it was in Manchester and it was theatre size. So the palace it, could have been the palace. It could have been, yeah. It yeah. could have been. My sister would know. She's got a memory for those things. But for me, what I remember, I think, is the the electricity of it, uh, the lights. Also, when we saw Camel, they had this massive, huge projection behind them. They had an album at the time called uh, Snow Goose or Flight of the Snow Goose, and. They they filmed these snow geese and and they were projecting a bit and so as a kid I was just I was just blown away completely like really blown away and and ironically when the first proper tour I ever did we took projection out with us as well and it was pre pretty weird in those days it wasn't digital it was a thirty five mil projector from a cinema that they had to box up and carry around the world it was a bit of a feat to do it but I think it's because I saw it as a kid and it was just ingrained in me. Um, but yeah, she took me to gigs and she used to go to gigs all the time. And a lot of the music that I kind of listened to as a kid was probably not, um, for instance, I knew all the Genesis albums back to front. I knew all of Yes's albums, a lot of prog rock basically, yeah. but she loved Motown and Northern Soul as well. So she had a split personality in that respect. Um, she loved a bit of everything. And then I've got an older brother called John. And he, he loved bands like Queen, so I knew, you know, Nights at the Opera, Inside Out as well. They weren't my records. I wasn't even allowed to touch them. But I knew those records, and, and they've kind of stayed there, I think, a little bit somehow, yeah. So My first ever gig was um, ELO. Oh, my word. Can you imagine? Not really, no. Can you imagine? <laughs> no. That's, yeah, wow. That is, yeah, that's almost too much. Actually. I know, I yeah. know. And I thought... where do you go from there? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, um... That's my trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right yeah. there. At yeah. the NEC in Birmingham. Wow. I okay. was 13 or 14. Okay. And I was well, like, that... how good is this? Yeah. And also arena gigs at that point. That was a, a really new thing, I think. I know. You know. Um Bev Bevin. Wow. Smashing it. Yeah, that is crazy because on the one hand it is kind of um Yeah, I don't know what to say about that because <laughs> it you kind of want to build up to it a little bit, don't you? And that that's not building up to I'm it. I'm still coming down from it. Yeah, yeah. Explains a lot. No. Well, <laughs> do you remember there was um there was a centre in Birchwood, which is outside Warrington, and it, I think it was a sports centre, but they did gigs there. And they have the snooker there. On the did they? Is that what it was? Yeah, oh, right. Dickie Davis. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, um, Shalimar were going to play there, which I couldn't believe, and I loved Shalimar. So a friend of mine, a guy called Mark Berry at school, we, we, I think we were only 14, 15. And I don't even know how we got the tickets. Maybe my sister got the tickets for us. I don't know. And we went to see Shalimar there. And it was kind of like, it was a bit weird because it was great, by the way. And they were amazing. But they were kind of playing in a gym. And it was so. So I had been to a few gigs. I mean, I think you've been thrown in the wrong deep end, if I'm honest, because it was too... That must have been amazing. And, and I mean, you, it was... Yeah, you need a few sweaty ones, I think, and a few oh, cold-up ones. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I can't even remember the second one. Right. I have no idea what the second gig was. I remember wow. seeing... Um, oh, who would it have been? Who did, uh, Benny King at the Palace. Oh, wow. And um, Deacon Blue with the support band. Oh, wow. That was quite a good night. That's always amazing, I think, the support bands. You know, because obviously somebody 
must have been the headline above Oasis in 90-whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, boom. <laughs> you know what I mean? You kind of think... That, I, I do think that's a really interesting journey, the support band thing. And I, I, I never did it. Like I say, I opened for Take That last year. And I've never done it, just simply because we've released singles. They just kind of happened. And before you know what you're doing, you can go out and do a pretty big tour straight away, which was amazing and, you know, a real luxury in lots of ways. But I didn't learn anything. So I went from doing pretty much doing the Lee Arms in Newtley Willows to doing Edinburgh Playhouse. They called it a warm-up gig for our, for Wembley Arena. He said, we better put him in a theatre first because walking out of Wembley Arena might be a bit of a, you know. Um, yeah, so that was kind of weird, I think, really, yeah. that No, that's really interesting because, you know, you didn't tread the board, so you didn't no. have you didn't have the hours, the performing no. hours. So I'd, done, I'd played in, obviously, we did pubs and we did some clubs. We did some of the working men clubs sort of thing, but not a lot because... We weren't very good at doing covers. We did them, but we Is this weren't. FBI. Great. Yeah, yeah, and we weren't. We weren't great at it. Rick's we were band all... was FBI. Yeah, there, you go. there was a KGB in Newton as well, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and, CIA, yeah. VHS. Yeah, well, there you go. So yeah, I didn't. I didn't really. I didn't do enough of that, if I'm honest. Um, but also, I was really lucky that by the time we actually went on tour, I think I'd had like five hit singles. So you're kind of feeling a bit more. A bit more confident because you can sort of pepper them in a set and make it. You know what I mean? And, Still not yeah. a big set, though, is it? Five singles? No, no. I mean, we, we, obviously, I'd had I'd had two albums. I think by the time we were we were going out with the second album, if yeah. you know what I mean. So I think there were four singles on the first album and three or four on the second. So by the time we actually got on the road with that, I'd actually had five proper hits, I think, or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly, but yeah. And it, I think I had eight hits, I think, in the UK in the, in the end at that you know in that sort of glory moment and. um but it is a bit weird, I think. It is. When you look at certain people who have played every dive over like five or ten years, you know what I mean? So when they get to Wembley or they get to Madison Square Garden or whatever it is, for one, they've earned it, and for two, they know how to do it. And um, But we had quite a show, to be honest. We, As I say, we had quite a bit of film stuff that I... It was pretty complicated, but really primitive how it worked. I interacted with myself. We filmed all this footage of me doing things I couldn't possibly do. And then I kind of worked off that and I walked into the screen. And the way we got the screen to work was I stood on a pedal and Ken, who operated the projector, when the pedal went on, the little light went on, so we pressed go. <laughs> In front of the 10,000 people, we're just hoping Ken's going to see that, that light bulb go and press go. Did he always see it? He did. He burst into flames one evening. That wasn't great. But, um, what, Ken? No, not Ken, but um, the film. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I've had a very typical um, sort of career in that sense, in that in, in that early part of that, you know, because so many people... I mean, like the Stock Hickey Mortman thing, obviously, they weren't about that. They were just about having hit singles. I don't think they were that motivated by albums. I'm sure they were when they saw how much money they made from them, but that wasn't their thing. It was about writing a song that was a hit. They weren't really that bothered about writing what anyone would term to be an album track. And I know that's not a very kind way of saying it, but that's what we all refer to it as. Um, just weren't interested. And luckily, I, I got four songs on that first album, and I got, I think, four or five on the second one. I can't remember now, but um, which was a bit unheard of, because that's, that's not what they were about. You know, they were all about hit singles. Weren't really bothered if anybody went out and toured them, to be honest. I don't, I don't think they were overexcited about that, because... I think it was an era when you sold a lot of records. You sold a lot of singles. You know, you remember, you, you could sell... 
the really really big singles of the day could be approaching a million and more, couldn't they? And that oh, was yeah, you know, number one, yeah. number ones, unless it was January or February, three, four, five hundred thousand on a regular basis yeah. every week for yeah. number one. Yeah, and so and obviously those guys, they were doing it all the time. So I think they were quite happy doing that, and I don't think they really had a super focus on you know you make an album, you go out and tour it. I don't think that's what they were about at all. So. So it wasn't typical and normal, really. I kind of had to fight for it a little bit. I'm not, I don't, fight's not the right word, but I I had to kind of just dig my heels in and say, no, I'm definitely going out. I'm definitely going to go and play because I think they would have been happy for me to just knock out singles, you know. So, yeah, a bit weird. I'm just going to check that that is, I know it is. It's just I'm slightly terrified because I'm recording it. It is, it's recording. (laughs) Uh, Now that we pause for a second, we'll leave all this in, by the way. Anything you want taken out, we'll take it out. No, I'm fine. Otherwise, we'll leave it all in. I'm fine. Um, we might as well say now, because you've just said that, mm. that we're in Rick's house and uh, we're in his studio. Uh, we're in Rick's half. Lena has her half. Well, you have a quarter. She has a quarter. And then you share the middle bit. You share, you share the middle bit. That's exactly what we do. Uh, yeah. And it's lovely to be here. It's fantastic to well, be nice here. nice to have you. Um, you. You weren't a one-hit wonder, but you just listened to your talk there. You know, I was going to mention to you that you are a unique performer now there's people that have had a career like yours like this you know the second coming if you like mm. but nobody i don't know anybody who had it five years like you because you weren't a one-hit wonder but you were an eight-hit wonder mm. and then you know you disappeared you vanished yeah and i remember you know there was the stock Aitken and waterman years and then you made some decent cash which was also very interesting and you had a number one in, in america mm. you know never going to give you up was number one in 24 countries wasn't it I think, yeah at the time and also just just and the only reason i'm saying this is not it, i am bragging about it but it's more to give it context uh together forever was the second single there and that was number one as well and so sorry i've, I've interrupted you mid-flow but i'll get on to what all i, I wanted know. to say crack, about crack it on, well right. what it was is that the weird thing was when i went to america nobody knew stock Aitken waterman was because I think Banana Armour had had some big hits there before working with them and then with them, but pretty much no one else had really. And so, you know what it was like in the day. It was like it was, they had five records in the top twenty. They, they were household names. They were this, that, and the other. I'd go to a radio station in New York or Chicago, LA, or what have you, and they they wouldn't even talk about them. And it was really weird because half the interview would be about them normally, and that was okay. It was fine. It was sort of. It helped me. It helped break me, obviously, that they, they had that name and that power and everything. But in America, nobody really cared. So I kind of had a slightly different, I wouldn't say a different career, but it was a different, they released different singles. Um, and I think I was just viewed slightly differently there because they didn't have the, the background of these um, sort of conveyor belt style, you know, big production they had their own. I mean, they had, they've had it with Motown and things like that. You know, yeah. they, they had their own version of it, yeah. I suppose. But Stock Aitken and Waterman were, they were such a British phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and the States doesn't really care about stuff like that, as you know better than I do. Mm. But to be to have a number one in America is such a big deal. It mm. just changes the game. Mm. You know, and to, to be well-known in America, you know, especially with two singles, your first two singles, mm. yeah. um, is quite incredible. Did you feel a bit freer over there than you yeah, did over here? Hundred percent. I said I, I didn't know that, yeah. until this, but I just sensed that might have been yeah, the case. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, because because I think people just judged the the records as pop records for just what they were, whereas the press here and the media here judged it as a stock aching Waterman record first, if you like. And on a one, and like I say, that opened some doors, you know, and I still see Pete and I still give him a hug and I, and I mean it when I give him a hug because I'm like, he gave me a break, basically. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm all fine with that. But I just think going there was a bit of a relief 
because I almost wanted to say at times, I don't mind talking about it now, but I have no issue whatsoever. But when I was doing it every single day, day in, day out, and people go, so stuck at one, well, go and interview them. If you want to know what they're like, go and interview them, you know. Um, whereas in America, like I say, it never really, it, it came up, of course, but nothing like here at all. Um, and also one of the things that I genuinely loved about America, and I still do to this day, was that I would go to places and I'd think, okay, this is where Al Green's from. And I'd sort of think, I know Luther Vandross lives in L.A. I think he lived in L.A. at the time. So I'm pretty sure he's heard me sing. Unless he lives up a mountain somewhere and never puts the radio on, Luther Vandross has heard me sing. And that really meant something to me because people like that, those guys kind of are the people who taught me to sing, really. They don't know that, but they did. Yeah. And... um I've had a few road trips across America for various reasons, and obviously we've toured there quite a bit off and on over the years, and we've done it recently, actually, as well, and we've sort of kind of done it, you know, pretty old school because we've done small gigs when we've been there in the last few years, nothing big, really. Um, so we've done it on a bus, you know, and we've slept overnight. We, we, I don't love flying either, by the way, and um, so I'm always keen to sort of get in a vehicle rather than get on a plane. Um, and there's just a part about America that, unless you drive through it, you don't really understand it, I don't think. Um, and it, where the it music... Is massive, isn't it? It is massive, and and it's also where... I think it's sort of a bit more understandable sometimes why country music is as big as it is and as has been and what it means, you know, because, you know, we went to um, the Motown Museum, as they call it now, which was... It was um, Gordy's house. It was... That, that's, that's, that was his house. He just happened to kind of think, well, I better put a studio in and, you know... And it is... It's a tourist thing now, to be fair. It's not a real studio anymore, and they do parade you around it a little bit, and you go around it and everything. But to actually be there and just kind of think... And we have that in Britain, definitely. We definitely have that. But I think America's just got more of it, and I think the distances make it more understandable that you could have a certain sound coming from somewhere. And that Elvis... Could have could Elvis have come from New York? I don't think so, somehow. I think he had to be... A Memphis sort of, you know what I mean? I think he had to have that in him, I think. And I, I don't know. know. You've got a few parallels with Elvis. Because, you know, everybody, a lot of people thought you were black when they heard they you They did, singing. yeah, they did. And they he, did. He, big gospel upbringing, you were yeah, in yeah. the church choir. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and that that's what gave you the 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 gravity, I think, with Sock and Waterman. Was, it, was your, it was literally the timbre of your voice that made you different. You're a different human being anyway. You know, I it always it always came across to me a bit like you you didn't really like what was happening at the time. Mm. You 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 thought it was a price worth paying mm. because you were living your dream. Mm. But actually you were actually you weren't living your dream. You weren't living the kind of dream that you wanted to, but you can't have everything. Mm. Um you know, and was that did, did that have a lot to do with the fact that you called it a day really quite early on? I th I think there's a lot of things. I think I think um there's a lot of things. I'll try and condense it really quick. And if you want to edit this later, you're more than welcome. <laughs> um, I'd been signed to Stock Aitken Waterman. And when I signed to them, nobody knew who they were. I didn't know who they were, that's for sure. But Pete had a jag and he had le leather pants. And that was good enough for me. That was good enough for me. So we go down to London and they've got a studio and the other two guys, Matt and Mike, are in there making records every day and, you know, working the backsides off all the time so the work ethic was great they were totally into music that's all they ever they lived and breathed it and everything and i hadn't experienced anything like that really i'd been in a few you know little studios up north and stuff but so assigned to them it took forever to get a record together 
because they just exploded in the next, literally in the next few months. So the Dead or Alive record came out, Princess record came out first, I think, both number one records, massive big hits. And I'm like, okay, so I'm now signed to these guys who having number one records. This is good. <laughs> um, and obviously they had loads of artists and Mel and Kim and different, you know, and they were finding their own, I don't think they'd find it, found it yet, but they were finding their own identity and their sound and their, you know. Um, but in that time, Pete... Uh, Waterman, that is, wanted to sign me to a proper major label. So we signed to RCA in the end. Um, and just some of the, the background bits of it that I just thought, this can't be the way this works. We went for a meeting with a guy called Peter Robinson, who's head of the A&R department. And he said, this is all great, Pete. I'd love to sign Rick, but I do need to hear him sing. And Pete's like, yeah, okay. So he tells him that Matt and Mike are going to do a little gig with me singing you know Matt and Mike say no we're not so I went home to Newton got my four track demos took my vocal off them came back down and I sang I think three or four songs in the reception for the head of A&R at, at RCA Records and this was a worldwide deal it was going to be a big big thing so I'm singing away and I'm thinking to myself no reverb on the on the mic it's just some crappy old amp they found that I can sing through or something I'm like this can't be this this isn't even like a movie. This is just weird. What's going on? Um, but it was one of the most fortuitous things ever because he said, who wrote the songs? And Pete said, well, Rick did, of course. He's a great songwriter, <laughs> which I don't really think he had any intentions of me necessarily writing songs in their building. I don't know. You'd have to ask him that. But that wasn't the normal, as I say, the run, normal run of, the, run of things. So I think... Everything about the way it all started was not normal. It wasn't like an A&R person. Pete was the A&R, if you like, definitely. But it wasn't like an A&R from a record label said, right, this is how we're going to do this. Talk to a manager, explain it all. This is how... Da, 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 da. It was very much throw it at the wall and just see what happens. And when Never Gonna Give You Up came out, they used a photograph from a photo session I'd done for something else. It wasn't even the, they did, you know, the video we made in the week we went to number one. And as you will remember, it took like four or five weeks to go to number one. So I, used, I walked into RCA sometimes, I think, while this was about to be number one. And I didn't know anybody and they didn't know me. And I'm just thinking, is this, how, is this, what it, is this how it works? And for me, I was kind of like, I really wanted it to be more about the recording process, I think. And the whole planning of, well, we do this, we do that, and then we go out and we play live. Like I said, that wasn't a big deal to, to you know, a lot of the people around me. And I think by the time I'd had the hits and everything, um, I looked back at it and kind of thought, yeah, but the, they are my hits, and I, I own them more definitely today than I ever have, I think. But I kind of figured, I felt a little bit more they were Stock Aitken Walkman's hits. I just sang them. So anyway, I think by, by the time I left the Stock Aitken Waterman thing, I wanted to try some different things. I made a record um, with a, a, a guy who's now a really good friend of mine called Gary Stevenson, who'd made some great records with people like Go West and stuff, which had musicians all over them, and they were recording loads of different studios. And to me, that was just like kid in a candy store. This is great, you know. Um, one of my favorite, I play drums, and one of my favorite drummers of all time, a guy called Vinnie Caliuta, who's played for Sting for years and everything, and played on some amazing records, came and played on that. So I'm finally making a record that I think is exactly how you should be making records and what I feel it's a bit more about. And we did have a hit from that called Cry for Help, and it, and it did, you know. But um, the record company side of it all fell, about, fell apart at that point because um, for whatever reason, the, the managing director got the sack and 
So that record kind of just stopped at that point because the new managing director just completely stripped the company of marketing people and it just started again. And so even though we sold we sold quite a lot, I think we sold over a million albums with that third album, and which, you know, by most standards is great, but comparative to what I'd done, it, 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 people were looking at it around me kind of going, oh, we're going to have to sort that out. You, know? you sold a million. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, but again, we're going back in the days when you did sell lots of records. and But for me, it was also... Okay, so I've had the Stock Aitken Walkman thing, and that's got its sort of, not negatives, I don't want to call them negatives, but it's like, I felt a bit removed from the actual music that people obviously loved, you know, and, I, and don't get me wrong, I love Never Gonna Give You Up more than anybody, because it's given me a life, and I can see the absolute joy of it, you know, and you've seen me play gigs, I, I, I relish that moment, because it sort of defines who I am to, to a great degree, it defines a huge part of my life and, and what it's done for me and everything. I think the way we made them was a bit weird. It, it wasn't the dream, that's for sure. Well, going back to the gig thing, actually, about going to see ELO as your first gig, and it perhaps would have been better to see somebody, a little, a little smaller venue. And a I little don't less regret known. it. No, but, but I know what you mean. Yeah, and I, and I think there's an element that I have, and I don't regret any of my thing because I'm where I am today and I'm very happy where I am, but I kind of think it would have been good to have like a number nine and then a number six and then or whatever, and just gradually go, what is going on here? Whereas it was so mad, that first song. It was just mad. And as you said, it was number one in so many countries, countries I'd never even been to. Or heard even, of, maybe. Yeah, couldn't even spell, <laughs> you know, all the rest of it. And um, Did you go to all the countries it was number one? In? I don't know about all of them, but I went to a lot. I didn't go to, funnily <laughs> enough, I've only been to South America to do gigs and stuff in the last 10 years. Never went anywhere. Did pretty well, though, as it, as it happens, thankfully, but never went there. And I think because record companies back in the day couldn't get the money out of South America, so there's no point sending you. But um, yeah, and like Mexico, you know, I've been to gig in Mexico and stuff, and and the and parts of the Far East, or it's more kind of like I've been to Japan quite a few times because it was always a big market. I think back in the day for pop music, but you know, Southeast Asia, I never went there either. I've been there a lot for gigs now and stuff, and so the world is. But the world is a very different place than thirty odd years ago, isn't it? You know, in every respect. So. And I think it is for music and where bands play and tour now that is everywhere, isn't it, really? so. Were you scared of flying back then? No, I flew every day and didn't think twice about it. And I think partly what happened, and again, this is this is the thing, I'm, I'm being a butterfly at the moment, I'm going from one conversation, part of the conversation to another, but I think one of the things was when our daughter was born, um, which was after that first album I'd done after Stockick in Waterman, where we all had a bit of a kick in the teeth because it just sort of stopped. We put a single out. I had long hair, long hair and real drums on a record and it still went top 10 in America as well. In fact, it's one of my biggest songs in America radio-wise and it's kind of like, I thought, right, we've released a song with a choir on it called Cry for Help and we've done all right. It's great, great. I've got a career after Stock Aitken Woman. This is great. And then that album just kind of just died a death after that because there was nobody there really. The infrastructure wasn't there to make it work. And our daughter was born uh, a little while after that and... You mentioned it. I'd made some money. And I don't mean to bring money and music together because it's a bit ugly sometimes. And you should obviously not make decisions based on how much money you're going to make. But for me, it was more about, I've made enough money not to do this if I really don't want to anymore. And I just don't think I really, really had the same love of it. Um, I'm not even sure I truly loved all of it anyway. When I've looked back a few times and I... I I can't remember how 
I don't remember how now, but I remember doing a Wogan thing, and I saw it again recently. I've been on Wogan a couple of times, I think. And I remember doing it because it was a really big deal. You know, Terry Wogan, I mean, you know, don't need to tell you that. You know, a legend and just, you know, just a real big deal to be on that show. As was Top of the Pops and various other things, you know. Um, and when I've looked back and seen it on YouTube, I'm like, why are you so miserable? Lighten up, for God's sake. But I think... Yeah, I'm glad you said I, I that. Think, yeah, because I'm looking at it going, what's going on? Um, and I wasn't like that with my mates. And I wasn't like that with, you know, my ex-manager who travelled, you know, lived in each other's pockets for, for quite a few years. And, you know, um, I, I was not like that. But I think I was just guarded. It's so true, though, isn't it? And yeah. often we do that. It's, you know, it's like it's the imposter syndrome or whatever you want to call mm. it. And, you know, what we do is we sort of blame things that haven't happened on people that haven't done them and never will. Mm. And that, you know, you're almost ready to be angry or defensive. And then when the, the thing doesn't show up for you to be angry about or defensive towards, mm. you get even more wound up about it. Yeah, and then you feel a bit of a dick. Mm. Um, yeah, and then you begin to sort of resent other people because it's easier than resenting yourself, I think. But I'm 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 purely speaking about projection from my point of view. Well, I, we've all done it. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I also think the weird th the weird thing is then I actually enjoyed a lot of it, and we had we really had a laugh, and we really had some great times traveling. Like I say, I wasn't bothered about flying, and I was on a plane every day. I remember I remember one time when we went to Rome. And I think I'd been to Rome about five times and I'm kind of a sword and sandals guy anyway in terms of movies and stuff like that. And I love a little bit of the history of, you know, ancient Rome and that kind of thing. I just, I was just a real, it tickled me to actually be there, if you know what I mean. And I'd been there a few times and we were going past the Colosseum and I just said to, to the, the driver and I kind of said to the, the record company guy, I said, look, we just need to stop for a minute. And he's like, no, but we've got to get to this radio station. I know, but I just need to stop for a minute. And I got out of the car. I think it was actually raining, believe it or not. But I got out of the car. And I just stood there looking at it. And there was a huge map of the world of what was the Roman world and what it is today, which is Rome, basically. But, you know, and I was looking up at the Colosseum as well. And I got back in the car and the guy said, are you OK? Are you all right? Because he thought I was felt a bit sick. I said, no. I said, I just keep coming here. And I've never seen that before. You know, but I did get to do a lot of things that were amazing and see things that you don't get to see in normal life. And... I mean, you know, you, you talk about not seeing the Colosseum. Think, imagine how the Beatles felt. You know, most most, Be most Beatles lyrics that you can buy at auction when they come up are on the back of either plane tickets or <laughs> or, or restaurant menus because yeah. they were just always on yeah. the bloody go. And they did yeah. they did two albums a year. They they wrote and recorded two albums a year, and then they often wrote and recorded another six singles that weren't on any of the albums. And they did that for ten years. I mean, yeah. come on, you know. But they were in a band. You know, and you weren't, you were a solo artist. And yes, so they had the mates. Share it a bit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, they had three yeah. other people yeah. who knew how they felt. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah. didn't have that. No. And also, you weren't doing what you really wanted to do. They no. were doing what they wanted to do yeah. with their three mates. Yes. And that makes it easier, doesn't it? It's yeah, got... no, it, it definitely, it does. And, and yeah, I did think at times, and I've, I've thought back on it, that I I might have hung in there a bit more if I'd done it with, with mates and we were a band. But then again, I've also heard horror stories of bands and I won't mention names where, you know, they won't they won't talk to each other. They go on stage, they perform like you wouldn't think there was any rift going on, but they don't they don't they leave from different, you know, sides of the stage and don't speak. And you, and I've been to some of them gigs, you know, and I'm like Can you spot it? 
Well, I don't know if I can spot it, but I know, like, let's say, you know, I've had certain friends from, from, let's say, a crew that we've, you know, had on a tour and what have you, and you do, you have a few drinks and you get chatting and we, you play that game of worst tour you've ever been on, do you know what I mean? And then, uh, and then, and what then, a game. And then, yeah, and then, you know, and um, no, I've got to be honest, I just want to say this here and now. I'd say pretty much all the crew I've ever, ever worked with uh, don't tell stories and don't do all of that and don't do that. But at the end of the day, they're only going to say something that's globally out there anyway. They're not going to tell me a secret. Yeah. It's just I didn't know it, if you know what I mean. So I was like, oh, yeah, you know, everybody knows that. You know what I mean? And I thought, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that about that band because when I've been to one of their gigs, I've just thought they're still mates, you know, and it's like, no, nah, not really. It's just the love ain't there anymore, but they do it, you know. So, and again, looking at the Beatles, I mean, they they did so much in a very short space of time. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And from record one to the last one, it's just, how is that? The, how are they the same human beings? How did they make that transition? How did they become that? And obviously it's talent for sure, but I think it's, I think it's almost a bit like, a, a sped up diamond process they just got crushed so much in the early bit that, that it forced them into being that good i think Do you know they, what were, I mean? they they um, they never cease to every time i put on abbey road or whatever it is yeah. right let's talk about this extraordinary 22 year break that you had um <laughs> because not only did you have a career unlike anybody else in the 80s and you did you weren't a one-hit wonder you were this eight-hit wonder with number two number ones in america incredible on the a record label that was probably the least likely to achieve that if you were a betting person mm -hmm. but then you took a 22-year break you freak yeah i did do a few things i did do a couple of things i what, one of the things i wanted to do is i wanted to try and be a songwriter producer so i had a studio built in fulham and it, it was amazing that place actually it was weird because it was just at the end i had a two-inch tape machine and a proper desk that you actually plugged things into and all of that and i had learned a bit at, at you know pete's place waterman's place not a lot really but i'd learned bits um and i kind of wanted i just wanted my own studio really so i so i had this place uh, put together it was really gorgeous it was great and then i started to you know try and sort of get some things together uh, to be able to approach uh, record labels and, and whatever and say, look, I've written these things, I've done these tracks, are you interested? Da, da, da. But for one, I don't think I was really ready to do it um, skills-wise. And for two, I actually find it quite hard writing a song for someone else. If I'm going to sing it, I can pitch it at myself and maybe find something that works for me to do. And whether I can do that for other people, I don't know. Um and a few of my friends are songwriters and, and were kind of just finding their feet at that time. And they'd come round and use the studio and I'd lend it to them and stuff. And um, so anyway, so I had that studio for quite a while, quite a few years. It became a bit of a hangout place for friends to come and just, you know, hang out and do stuff. And like I say, I lent it to people. Um, but I kind of gave up on the idea. But one thing that kind of a crazy thing that happened was um, a friend of mine sent some songs to an A&R guy in Germany at one of the labels in Polydor, I think it was. And um, this guy got in touch with me. Uh, he was still a friend to today, actually, because he said, oh, I want to come over and see you. And I'm like, okay. I thought, well, that's a great start, actually. If I get some songs cut by a German artist, that could be really cool, singing in English. And yeah, great. Okay. So he came over and he basically said, I want you to do them. <laughs> cut a long story short, I made a record for Polydor in Germany. Didn't release it anywhere else. I said, I'll do it, but you can't release it anywhere outside of Germany. And I didn't really enjoy the process. I liked making the music, but I didn't enjoy the process of... of trying to go through those hoops again if i'm honest so 
promotion and things. Yeah, everything. Yeah, interviews, just, just all of it. And just I think time had moved on. I felt really old. I remember going to do this TV show and and uh, Westlife were on it, and I just felt like a granddad. I was probably like thirty something, but I felt like I felt ancient. Can we just talk about Peter Kay? Yeah, absolutely. Right, for sure. How much was Peter Kay asking you to go on tour with an, an open up on that massive tour he did? Um, how much was that? How much part did that play in you coming back again? I think it's definitely. I think all, all of these, all there's a bunch of things, some big like that, massive like that, and some small that kind of made me comfortable enough to say I want to be gigging again properly. Just and, give us three of those. Okay, well. The first time I ever sang my old songs again, um, I'd had offers to go and do gigs in different places, and I'd always said no. Obviously, the UK, but different parts of the world, and it was really flattering to be offered. But I just thought, no, I don't do that anymore. And, this is, and the Rewind Festival started, and the, the yeah, but this is before that, right? Okay, before that. Okay. So um, our daughter Amelia was fourteen, fifteen, and um, uh, we had this offer to go to Japan. And I'm sort of smiling now, actually, because I'm just laughing about it. But I'd had this offer to go to Japan. And um, Lena, my wife, and our daughter Amelia really wanted to go to Japan. They'd, ne- they'd never been. And I'd been a few times. And our daughters wanted to study art even then and everything. So everything Japanese she was really interested in. And so I said yes. And I just thought, oh, we'll go. It's fine. You know, we'll t- I'll do the three or four gigs and I'll do them and I'll, that'll be it. I'll never do it again, but that'll be fine, you know. Are you 40-something at this time? Uh, this, this is uh, 13, 12, 13 years ago, actually. Right. Yeah, so it's a while ago now, actually. So anyway, we get to Japan. Um, we had a weird journey to get to Japan, actually, but there you go. It's a long story. Um, I can get into that another time. Oh, I'm going to get into it. I'm going to get into it. Um, my wife Lena is her real job. She manages me actually, but her real job is she's a film producer, and she'd been nominated for a short film Oscar. Uh, her and Sean Ellis, the guy that, that directed it, so so they went to the Oscars, and we did as well. I'd said yes to the gigs before that, but it meant that we went to the Oscars in in obviously Los Angeles, red carpet, the whole bit, everything, and then I got on a plane to Tokyo from Los Angeles to go and do these gigs and, and the girls came a couple of days later um, to sing those songs after all these years. So it's more showbiz than that all it was, of a sudden. It was a mad, it, yeah. honestly, it was like from sort of like me jet washing me wheelie bins to sort of just the maddest sort of couple of weeks you can imagine. It's exciting. It was and it was kind of otherworldly and it was crazy and also because it was Japan and I always liked going to Japan because it was just mad. I did commercials there and everything. We shot them actually around different parts of the world but you know, a bit like the Lost in Translation film. It's say. too close to reality. For, for honestly, when Lena and I saw that film, we, we, we our jaws were on the floor. I can't believe you did ads, Rick. I, 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 well, I, I did a soft, comer, a soft drink commercial. I love the fact you yeah. did this. This yeah, is yeah. so unlike yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, well, I remember when it happened, they kind of said, um, you know, we want, want you to do this commercial for Japan. And I'm like, well, I don't really do that. Who, who would do that? So they sent us this VHS, as it was at the time, with every major artist you can imagine doing a commercial for like whiskey or, or whatever it was, you know. And I'm talking like, you know, Tina Turner, Sting, the biggest artist in the world at the time. And I just went, oh, okay. Then. <laughs> so we shot four commercials. Anyway, so I, I digress. So, so I'm back in Japan. And I actually said when I went out in front of the audience, I said, "Right, who's ready for the for the you know biggest biggest karaoke in Tokyo tonight?" Because that's what it felt like. I hadn't sung those songs for years, but I would say, I'd say five minutes into it, I was thinking, "So tell me again why you haven't done this." It was really weird, 
really strange. And I think it was almost a bit like anybody can do in any any walk of life, in any kind of scenario where you can open a door and go, why have I never done this before? And I think going to Japan was a, a really good way of doing it because I was so jet-lagged. We'd had this freaky few days. It really was mad. And we stayed up all night after the, after the Oscars, actually. And we got back from that. And um, I remember just thinking, I'm probably going to do that again then, I think. And then I started doing, you know, bits and bobs. Met Simon Moran around that time, who was the, the promoter we talked about earlier. And in his very sort of disarming, completely casual, really comfortable way, he just said, look, you should go out and sing again. Let me sort it out. You don't have to think about anything. I'll sort it all out. Forget about the money. Forget about anything. Just go on a stage in England and sing. You can sing anything you want. You don't have to sing your old songs if you don't want. So I basically went out and sang a load of songs my dad used to sing around the house, which was Frank Sinatra and stuff like that, a bit of Burt Baccarat. Um, and obviously I sang Never Gonna Give You Up and I think Together Forever and maybe one other just because I think it was unfair not to, if you know what I mean. But And I just kind of really loved it and and from then i've never really we've just gradually 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 ramped it up a little bit more right. and then peter k comes along okay so tell us how the peter k thing happened so i'm singing at a charity event at warrington rugby club obviously simon moran oh, who's heavily it? involved in that <laughs> it's the yeah. rugby club and he'd asked peter to come and compare the evening so peter's comparing away and just being hilarious as he is and he introduced me um it's a small room. This it's like a um, um, what would you call it? Like an event room at the rugby club. So it's not like a big function room. Yeah, function room, and it's and it's not particularly big, but it's you know it's okay. So I'm playing away, and um, Peter was getting a bit mithered. See, I've used a proper northern term there. He was getting mithered. So he basically got his chair and he sat on stage, and he saw my lyric book because, like I said, I hadn't done that many gigs at this point, so I had to have the lyrics on stage just to just to make sure. So he picked them up and he's like going through and he's going, oh, that's a belter. Do that one. Because <laughs> he's got a microphone, obviously, you know, why wouldn't he? And it was hilarious that night. And we ended up, I ended up sat on his knee at one point singing songs. And it was, it was, you know, Peter really well. So after that night, I think just something just ticked, was ticking over in his head. And he just kind of said, look, would you, I don't know whether he asked me that night, but he asked me very shortly after that, how do you fancy opening up for me? I'm about to go on tour again, you know, and I'm like, I don't even know what that means, actually, but, yeah, I just kind of said. And um, so I did it, and I did. He was only, he announced it as Manchester, I think, as the tour that doesn't tour. So he did, like, five weeks in the first run in Manchester, and I did all of them. Um, I did all of the Londons. He came to London twice. I think he broke all the records at the O2 and at the MEN and probably every other bloody arena he played in. I did Manchester and London. Because um, by that time, I was doing gigs again, and, and you know. Um, but also, a friend of mine, one of the guys I spoke of before has become a really big producer and writer. I was chatting to him and he, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to open up for Peter Kay. And he just sort of said, well, you've got to do a new song. I'm like, what do you mean do a new song? It's not about that. And he said, no, but you're about to play for 50,000 people a night. He said, you need to do a new song. You need to play a new song every night to people. I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe I do. Maybe you're right. So he and I wrote a song, it's called Lights Out, and we got it on the radio and everything and all the rest of it, and I played that song to, I don't know, probably close to hundreds of thousands of people. It'd be millions, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah I don't quickly. know why, because I didn't do the whole tour. I only did I only, only did Manchester and London, which would have been... Because he went back for weeks again. It was such a weird thing. It was like it was like what I imagined doing a theatre gig's like, where you, you live in the town that you're playing in for, you know. Gigs. Yeah. And um, I really enjoyed it. It was a real eye-opener. 
Um, I saw his show, I think, about... Tw- I mean, Lena, my wife, saw it more than I did, but I think we saw it like 25 times Always or more. Always funny. Yeah. Always funny. Well, also because it's the same show. Of course it is. It's, it's you know, he, he, he writes it, he works on it. Like I said, he's got it down to the last detail. But it was almost freakily different every night because he's a little bit different every night. The audience is a bit different every night. And I don't know, just really interesting to see that, really. I've yeah. been with the Zen master because there's this thing called teaching from behind. Mm-hmm. And so you were learning things that you hadn't learned from the music business, right. but that could relate to what you could do yeah. in the future. And you've gone on to do. And do you think that, because I remember you doing that, and mm-hmm. I remember people saying very quickly, people going, you've got to get there for Rick Astley. Wow. And it was a really big deal. And Mm. do you think that gave you some confidence? Because so many people... Because you'd never really played to that many people. No. I mean, mean, bizarrely. It was was mad in lots of ways. I mean, one of the things for me that was really weird was I didn't... He didn't want anybody to know. And obviously, once you've done the first gig, everybody knows. But he just didn't want anybody to know at all. So I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell anybody. (laughs) So I I did the gig... I walked off stage and I texted my sister and said, if you want to see Peter Kay, I might be able to get you some tickets. <laughs> and I kind of like, I just thought the whole thing was hilarious. It's like, who says, who says don't tell anybody that you're going to open up for somebody in the MEN? Anyway, it was just mad. It was mad all around, actually. Um, but that was, so you've told us about two. Oscars in Japan, I'm going to count as one. Yeah. Peter Kay. Two. Yeah. Give us a third. Um, that gets you back. I think... I think one of the things that um, I became really, really comfortable doing was doing things um, with other people, i.e. like the Rewind gigs or Here and Now or whatever it was, where you get a bunch of artists, and obviously that bunch would have been 80s for me. I'm sure they do it with 90s now and whatever. Um, And I never had a thing about who was first on, who's last on, don't really mind. Um, I kind of saw there was a bit of camaraderie in it. There was a bit of... I've sort of become friends with some of those guys that I wasn't really friends with back in the day because I didn't really know them that well. I'd bump into them at Top of the Pops or Formula Eins, as it was called, in Germany or whatever. You know what I mean? You weren't... But when you're sort of hanging around in Henley sort of all afternoon and you're all over it, you're all over the ego, you're all over the sort of like, have you got two bodyguards? Do you know what I mean? No one gives a about... It's just you're in a field. And um, I think it just got really comfy and fun. And I went out to the audience thinking, so they haven't actually come to see me. They've just come to have a good time. Um, if the human league are on last, that's fine. If Tony Hadley's on last, that's fine. If I'm on last, that's fine. It doesn't really matter who's on last. It's just, we're coming. We're going to watch all of you. We're here for the first one. We're here for the last one. If I'm honest as well, and this is a bit of a weird word to use, uh, I was grateful for it. It's like, okay, so I get up. I'm only going to do 40 minutes, maybe a bit more. Um, I'm only going to sing the hits I had. Okay. Okay, this is good. You don't have to sort of... I don't apologise at my own gigs for songs I want to sing from album three, album four, whatever. Do you know what I mean? But I think if you're in front of an audience and all you've got to do is play them songs that, whether they like them or not, I know they've heard them. It's a very, very different feeling. It's a completely different feeling, actually. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but it's true. Yeah. And it's funny that you said, you know, it's a bit of a weird word, gratitude. I'm grateful. I was grateful then, you're grateful mm. now. Because the thing that was missing from 87 to 92 is you weren't grateful. No. Um, and because it wasn't joyful. 
Mm. And even though you were living 95% of your dream, the 5% that you weren't living was the most important bit. And by the way, I think that when, when you see somebody young now who is in the moment and who is grateful, mm. you know, yeah. um, maybe they had, maybe, you know, they had parents that have been in the business or they've been around it more, yeah. you know, it seems to, to lie a lot more lightly on their shoulders. Mm. And if it lies more lightly, even though it's important, because we, we come, we came from, you know, a place where if things would were, were big and important and successful, they so we sort of we sort of imagined they had to be heavy, and maybe they weren't, and maybe we, we made them heavier. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, and now now it feels lighter. But you've you've been, you've been back now for about the same number of years <laughs> as, as you were around. That's, you know, that in, is not lost on me. Eighty-seven to ninety-two. Genuinely not lost on me. So. Are we going to see you disappear for another 22 years in about a week? Because it's about um, a week well, from now. It's really weird, actually. And obviously, with the current times we're in, you know, um, we've done one gig. Well, sorry, we, we've done a few gigs, but earlier this year, you know, January, February, we were in um, Australia and New Zealand. And we were going to go to, well, we went to Japan. We just didn't do the gigs. So, and we were coming back here to the UK. And I was going to do the biggest tour I've done since back in the day. And obviously it all got cancelled. Everyone's gigs got cancelled. And it was, like, pretty horrible, if I'm honest. Because um, we had all the production design ready. And it, we were, like, there, you know what I mean? We were only a few weeks away from it. And it's been quite an adjustment over these past few months. And then we did went out to actually do a gig not long ago, a couple of weeks ago. And that's the only one that I think we're going to manage to do this year. And it feels... It feels weird. I don't feel like myself. Because I've had quite a few years now of... I've done way more gigging in the last few years than I did back in the day when I had the hits, if you know what I mean. So well, for all the years before that, I did yeah, yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's become normal to gig and I really miss the band and I miss, you know, because we really have, I mean, we have fun on stage, don't get me wrong, we really do, but we really have some good times when we're away and, and we all make an effort to do that. And that's a weird thing because there's a huge group of people I don't see at the moment. All right, we do a few Zooms here and there, but we're not... And I'm sure people have got it a lot harder than we are, but I'm just saying, relating that to a music career, um, it's a massive part of it. I do feel a bit weird. I've written a load of new things. I've not finished them, and I'm purposely not finishing them because I don't know when we're actually going to release them. And I don't want them to be finished and sat on a hard drive for however long that could be. So I don't know. There's an energy in that, isn't there? Yeah. They've got to be box fresh. And as long as they're not finished and then you finish them, they still will be. Yeah. And I can be in this room for hours on end uh, and come up with nothing but still be all right about it and just go, well, it didn't happen today, but it might happen tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? And um, so in terms of quitting, I don't want to quit right now. Um, And again, I think I've, I've accepted and I'm really comfortable with the concept that I'm not going to call myself a nostalgia artist completely because depending on where what country I'm in, um, that depends. But there is an awful lot of nostalgia to it. Of course there is. And um, I'm all right with that. It's funny because nobody calls a Rolling Stones tour nostalgic. No. Nobody calls a Who tour nostalgic. No. You but, know, it's, but that's you again. That's your... You know, this is you. You say... Do you know what I'm saying? I do, I do. But I also know that, for instance... I think what's happened in the UK is very different to what's happened everywhere else, to be fair, because when I made the record 50 uh, four years ago or five years ago, whatever it is, um, 
uh, and that you know we had a number one album here, which was like we were all freaked out by that and completely like what is going on and and it, and it actually then got a bit nuts because it I sound like I'm being my own PR now, but it carried on for quite a while and it sold it just kept selling did really really well and um um so that sort of changed the game a little bit when I went out and played live because I could play songs and people literally didn't go to the bathroom. It's a bit, and, that, and that, I use that term because I've done it with loads of other friends who play and what have you. You can, you sort of say, oh, we're going to do this song now. And you can just see like 10% of the audience get up to go to the bathroom. And um, it's weird. When we play the new ones now, they don't do that. They kind of want to hear them as much as the old ones. Not everybody, but there's a huge portion of, 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 of my audience who, who do want to do that. And, um, and that's a game changer. And that's and UK is really the only place that we've really had that kind of success, to be honest, where it's really kicked off. What I love what I love for you, what I love for you is you've had these two completely polar opposite experiences in the music business. Mm. Yeah. Doing are. the same job. Yeah, they're very chalk and cheese, they are. They really, really are, yeah. You know, and you wouldn't have had yeah. this this extreme um uh this this white to the black, you know, if you hadn't had such a a weird because you say it's weird to say you're grateful now you know i think your first experience must have felt a lot weirder it it did it, it did i mean even i can't remember a lot of it and that's not because i was like you know stoned or drunk or what have you it's just because there was a lot of it it just there was so much going on all the time and i i used to come back to like come back to the, the stock king waterman place and thinking okay well are we going to do it now? Are we going to sit down and actually have some time to? But we, it just not. It wasn't what they were about. It was about it was look, the factory. We, it was it the was, hit factory. It was, and I understand it. I think at the time, they got so much uh, stick from the sort of let's say the NME and and those that, that sort of side of things that it was like a lot of the bands I liked and a lot of the things that I'd grown up listening to would have been in the NME and not in Smash Hits. But I loved things that were in Smash Hits. Like I said, I loved Duran Duran. I loved a lot of things. I loved a lot of the bands that were really, really popular. I'm not saying I was like an indie kid. I was not at all. I think I just loved it all, I think. And therefore, it, it was upsetting to sort of think, well, I'm never even going to, I'm just going to be like the devil incarnate to that group of people. And it's like, it's only a pop song, love. Get over it. You know, but but I think people are a lot more forgiving now of where where you're coming from musically. Um people's landscape of where they you know take their music from and listen to and where they'll create a playlist or just listen to someone else's is so much more random today and look at festivals i've been on festivals where i'm like well the biggest example of that again we went to japan to do this festival and uh foo fighters are headlining the festival i'm like all the foam so i'm playing on a festival where foo fighters are headlined yeah and obviously that went completely nuts and bonkers. Do you know this? I ended up singing with them on stage. Yeah. I do. So okay. Yeah. So that was, and I, I, I was, I'm a bit of a closet rocker anyway. Well, and, and Rick, how did that happen? Okay, because many people play with, on the same festival because um, uh, they know each other and they're jamming with me. Yeah. How, how you didn't? They didn't <laughs> not know at you. All, not at so all. how did it happen? Well, I didn't know this at the time. I've since come to learn this that um, they they knew. Obviously, they know the song "Never Gonna Give You Up." It was a big hit. Blah blah. Um, but they'd learned that tune to do a TV thing in America. So 
when they get to Japan at some point, they're just perhaps going through the list or maybe somebody in their crew or someone's going, but you know, Dave Grohl and all of those guys, they're, they're, they're not just rock musicians. They play everything, can play everything. But anyway, I think they're going through the list and going, oh, that dude's playing. And I think they just kind of said, right, if we see him, are we getting him off? So on the set, it was over two nights. One was in Osaka and then in Tokyo. We didn't get to see them in Osaka just because of timings and everything. So we get to Tokyo. I've done my bit. Once again, I'm jet-lagged. It's Japan. I'm, in, I'm a bit jet-lagged. And also, we're done. So we had a few beers. Um, some of the guys in the band and went back to the hotel because they were just shattered. But So we're having a few beers, and we're like, right, we are getting as close to the stage as we can because this isn't going to happen again. You know, we're going to get really, you know. So we went to the back backstage area, and one of their crew guys kind of said, look, yeah, no problem. Just be at the side of the stage, you know, because, in other words, they have a policy, which not all bands have, which is, if you're on the festival and you're working, you can come and sit wherever you want kind of thing, you know. So we sat, stood right at the side of the stage. So they come out, crowd goes nuts. It's a baseball stadium, 50, 60, 70, whatever, 1,000 people. And the weirdest thing was, th this is why it got a bit weird. So I'm stood right at the front of the barrier, but I'm probably still 15 meters away from any of them. And they're playing away. And after about 20 minutes, Chris, who's one of the guitar players, he's looking over where we are. And he sort of mid-song comes over and we're all kind of moving out of the way because he's going to give a friend a hug. He's just realized he's there kind of thing. So he gives him a hug. So he goes back out and they're carrying on playing. And then Dave Grohl, he's looking over and, and he does the same thing. He's walking over. So we all moved out of the way because we're thinking, oh, he's going to go and hug this guy as well. And he came over and hugged me. <laughs> and he said, I'm Dave. And I said, uh, in the middle of the in gig. In the middle of the set, they're still playing. Oh my God. They're still playing a song at this point. So he comes over. <laughs> And I know their stuff pretty well, by the way. I'm a bit of a fan. I'm a big fan of theirs, actually, but I won't, I won't go into that. Anyway, whatever. And um, so, and he said, I'm Dave. And I said, I'm Rick. And he says, I know. <laughs> uh, it's, very, it's very weird, to be honest, to be recounting this in a way, um, because it's it was weird. It was very, very weird. Anyway, so he walks back out, carry on playing. You know, they're doing like a two and a half hour set or something. So they've been playing for a while. And then one of the tech guys comes over, and he's got a mic in his hand and he just moves the barrier and he kind of puts the mic in my hand. He said, Dave wants you out front. I'm like, okay. So, and I'm saying okay like that because I'd had a few beers at this point. So I just walked out and I'm thinking, oh, I seriously did, I had no idea that they would know how to play any version of Never Gonna Give You Up. I'm just thinking Dave Grohl wants to go, hey, look who's here, everybody, or, or something. I don't know what he wants me to do, right? But I'm up for it. So I walk out there. And he whispers in my ear, he says, so we're going to do your tune, but it's going to sound a bit like Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I'm like, okay, Dave. And because um, I don't know what to do. I'm looking at 70,000 Foo Fighter fans who, and obviously there's cameras at a gig like that. So they, they can see me and they can see him and they can see him whispering and everything. And I'm like, so, okay. So, and at that point, I sort of lost it a bit because I didn't know what to do. And I'm, I'm looking around and... And to, to put a bit of flesh on the bones, this little rock band that I have with two friends, our midlife crisis rock band, we do Foo Fighter covers, right? Badly, but we do them. So, and I'm just thinking, this is nuts, you know? So I'm looking at the audience and I just thought, oh, fuck it. So I just screamed at the audience. <laughs> I just screamed at them. I just, I don't know why. I just screamed at the audience. Come on, you motherfuckers. Because I just thought, and I wasn't trying to be rock and roll. I just thought, I don't know what else to do. So they started off and they did like a really grungy version of Never Gonna Give You Up and we just did it and it was amazing. It was really, really good fun. It was totally surreal, about as surreal as it gets. 
Yeah, I mean, it was just for me. It was it was a uh, one of the things I loved about it, to be honest, which does relate to what what we've talked about and you you've you've mentioned for sure, is that um, I was accepted that night as it just being a bit of fun. I don't mean like, hey, Rick can rock as well. I don't mean that. I just mean like, here's a dude. He sings. We make music. It's fun. It's that tune. We've had to learn that tune for something, so we're going to do it tonight in Tokyo. Boom. That's all there is to it. It don't mean more than that. That's just what it is. And it's just like, great, let's do that. We'll have a few drinks after, and that'll be that. And and it's kind of, it's interesting to see them as well in terms of, as you say, once you get to a certain, like the pinnacle, really, in terms of how big a career can get, um, to still be in love with doing something, for one thing, Um and the gusto they play with, and I know, I know one of the things that, that sort of baffles me and blows me away about Elton as well is that he's got this. I know, listen, he's got an appetite for a lot of things. I'm sure throughout his life, in, in all kinds of everything, he's a, he's a known collector and a known this, that, and the other. But when it comes to music, he still wants to know what's going on. I don't know whether I'm going to be like that at that age. Do you know what I mean? He still wants to know what's going on right now do you know what i mean well mira our producer my yeah. producer my lovely producer sitting behind yes. you now dedicated loyal up been up since 3 30 and still here hanging on in the afternoon thank you Got mira coffee, yeah. uh, we, we were talking about about you on the way yeah. over here and um she said you know the thing about rick is he just always gives it 110 percent, and it's true you do and so you are one of the people you're talking about, you know, and we were discussing it. We said, why is that? And we came to the conclusion that if you're any good at something mm-hmm. and you know you're good at it, it's actually much harder to, to put in a rubbish performance than it is to put in a good performance. Mm, interesting. Because it takes the same amount of effort, but you don't get the added fuel of the joy within it. And... I think the thing that keeps Elton going, the thing that the reason Dave Grohl, you know, Springsteen, all the great, mm-hmm. you know, the greatest remain the greatest because they know that being great is a lot easier than being shit if you can be great. Yeah, that's definitely one way of looking at it. You've just you just mentioned my name in 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 some pretty amazing company there, and I'll take that. I'll take that to the bank. But um, you either turn up or you don't. You but, know, Peter <clears throat> Kay, right? Who is just mm, always amazing. Mm. I talked to Peter about this, and he has. You'll know this better than I will, but he has a set list mm. because he has a he has his own sort of songs, but they happen to be routines, mm. comedy routines. So he has a set that he goes through, and you know, after every three or four subjects, he will write, "Remember, you're in the moment. Be in the moment. Be right. here now." Yeah. To keep bringing himself back. Now he doesn't have to do that, but he knows that it's more fun. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 for sure, absolutely. You're feeling your tummy, can't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. I also think, to be honest, I don't, I really don't ever walk on stage or even you feel it after breakfast in the morning where I sort of think, yeah, I've got this. I, I kind of think, I kind of think throughout the afternoon leading up to a gig, um, you better have this. I, I do. And I don't want to seem all kind of, but I do. I kind of think people have got off their backsides to come. They've paid money to come. They've, you know, they've done all kinds of things to come to this gig. And I kind of think, yeah, you know, and so I should. It doesn't even have to go without saying it, but I do. I genuinely don't ever, ever, ever turn up and just sort of think, "Oh, it'll be fine." I do try and give it everything for sure. I do, and I, I think I think it would be totally disrespectful if you didn't. But also the fact that I do think I'm a good singer. Of course, I do. I, I don't think you could want to do it in front of thousands of people if you didn't think you were good at it. Um, and I do. I want people to think I'm good at it. I don't want them to walk on going, "I love those songs," but he's not really up to it anymore. I want them to leave the building going, Jesus, 
I've, I've liked that song for a long time, but I didn't know you could sing like that. That's what I want. I want people to hear the new ones and go, oh, my God, now he's really singing. Yeah. You know, that's what I want. And I, I think that's the... There's not much else in it if you're not going to do that to some degree. If it's just, you know, you hear stories about people just taking the paycheck and all the rest of it. I, I don't... I'm not sure the artists are doing that. Maybe some are, but I don't, I, don't think, I don't think lots of artists are doing that. I think, yeah, they might be getting paid loads of money and it might be some diddly there, but... I don't think they walk in the building. I hope they don't, anyway. I hope they don't walk in the building just thinking, well, I'm getting paid a fortune and I can give them a shoddy performance and it'll be all right. And if they do, they're going to regret that at some point in their life, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, when people... when I've, We've worked with people that have, they, 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 they turn up reluctantly, the gig is booked, they're, they're being responsible, they're being professional, in right. inverted commas, and they go out there and they, they for some reason, there's a disconnect, you know, and the the people that end up off worse in the end is is, is the artists themselves. You know, and it, nobody does it on purpose. There must be a reason for people. You know, you you, you were a bit like that in eighty seven to yeah yeah yeah. But that but uh, but I think in terms of, I think playing live is very different to doing promotion. Yeah, I, and stuff. I get it. Um, I think that 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 goes back to a lot of it actually. Um, I remember being asked questions about real subjects when I was 21, 22. And I'm like, please don't ask me that because I don't have a clue. Yeah. I don't even have an opinion on it. Yeah. I'm from New Willows. It's a small, small town in the, in the north of England. Haven't been out of there a whole lot, you know, when it, when it finally kind of broke for me with that first song. And within six months, I'd probably been to every capital of Europe three or four times. I'd been... It's boring almost to hear it because I'm sure you've heard it from other people and people listening to this have probably heard it. But I've been to some of the best restaurants in Europe <laughs> with people twice my age, not understanding what was on the menu for one thing. It's so funny. And, and just saying, very often saying, uh, I'll have steak and chips. I know. Because I've been in an Italian restaurant going, I have no clue what most of this food is. I remember. And, they, the and they'd offer me the wine and I'm like, I, I don't know. Sorry to interrupt, but the first time I was with somebody, it was a wine thing. Right. And they asked for the wine list, didn't know there was a separate menu for the wine. Right. Right. Then they ordered some wine, and then they sent it back. It was right. like, fuck. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I've seen it in films not being yeah, sent yeah, back. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, t would you like yeah, to try yeah, the wine, yeah. sir? Mm. This guy tried the wine, mm. and he said, I'm sorry, no, yeah. can you open another bottle? It's mm. like, what the what? fuck are they going to do with that one? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It'll be fine, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, and what a great experience. What what an amazing treat to be taken to some of those places. But I also went usually with people who were like 15, 20 years older than me. And when you're 21 to 25 or what have you, I don't want to be going out with guys in their 40s and 50s or whatever they were, 30s, whatever, because it's like, you know, I'd rather go out with the guys and girls who work on the front desk and we'll want to go to the same places and have a bit of fun. And it's almost like you just became this this... I don't know. It was weird. You were upon in somebody else's game, not in your game. That's the thing. Yeah. And also, again, though, it was partly because that first song, Never Gonna Give You Up, was so big that RCA, which was then also became this other thing called BMG, this massive um, record company, um, sort of put me in their kind of top drawer and sort of said, right, this guy, we're going for this because if we get this right, we're going to have a really big album worldwide. Blah, blah, blah. So you become a priority and you become, you just become this other thing. And... You're a commodity, you become a commodity. Yeah, and I used to sneak out. We'd go and do Top of the Pops. It wasn't so bad in the UK, actually, but I'd, I'd go and do Top of the Pops and then say, right, can we go for a drink somewhere? Can we go and, can we all have a laugh? Yeah. 
Yeah. Can we go and do something that's, you know, and um, I don't know. It was just weird. And I sound like I'm, I've moaned through most of this thing. But I, I, do you not all right, sound okay. like you're moaning? All right, good. That's, you, that's, mm. the, that's the commentary. You often comment, you are a commentator on your... All right. Nobody minds what... You, you, okay. It's great to hear you talk about this. Okay. And it, you're just being completely honest. And you haven't said a fucking thing okay. that sounds... Um, uh, what's the word that... It sounds unreasonable. Okay. At all. All right, good. Interesting. Because you're a super fan. You're a super talent, but you're a super fan. Mm. And you wanted the people who you were a super fan of to understand that you, you okay, I'm at Stockhaken and Waterman, but, well, I, but you don't, you don't understand. I, this, I want, I'd rather be in your class than yeah, your class. And, and again, and I don't want to put this on Foo Fighters because it's not, it's not for me to do that. But that, that thing about getting up and singing with a band like that, is a is a tiny bit of like I don't I'm not saying they're not fans of mine they're not whatever they are of mine I don't I don't want to put words in their mouth it's not for me to do that all I'm saying is is that they're they're just very sort of like it's music that that's how it comes across to me anyway and I think because they're comfortable and the most comfortable people I've been around in any walk of life but I'm going to say music because obviously it's it's what I'm what I'm about a lot um, are the really 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 talented ones. Because there's no bullshit. They're, they don't have to make shit up. They don't have to do it. They just go, well, let's do it. There isn't any um, disconnect. There's no what have you because they're just good at it. You just know that they're, they're comfortable. Not even confident. I'm sure they are confident, but they're comfortable, which is probably where a lot of the confidence comes from, if you know what I mean. Um, it's also where a lot of the comfort comes from. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works both ways, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, it's life's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and also, but there's a tacit understanding. Yeah. When you get that close to someone, mm. they know that you've got it and you know that they've got it. And that was, I bet that was, you said it was acceptance that night. I bet there was a lot of closure there as well, wasn't there? I think there is because it's kind of, but it also it doesn't have to be something, you know, that's coming from where they're coming from. For instance, I've, I've, I've actually sung for Bert Baccarat and I've met him and chatted to him about, almost choking to death on a lozenger. Him, not me, by the way. <laughs> because um, we go to some of the gigs at Hampton Court Palace because we live down the road from it, and it's just a great place to see gigs. I've played there as well. It's amazing. It's just, anyway, that's another story. So Bert, as I call him, was coming. And um, I'd met him years ago, actually, but I don't think he'd remember that. But it doesn't matter. I went to his house and talked about songwriting. It doesn't matter. So we went to see him uh, at the palace, and... Uh, it was a really weird moment because he had a bit of a throat and he had a, a scarf around his neck. And uh, so he'd done this thing. And he had a bit of a croaky voice and it wasn't a super warm night. So he had a throat lozenge and he almost choked to death on it. And they, honestly, this went on for about a minute and a half. And we were like, even I was almost getting out of my seat and I was with Lena and we were both like, should we, someone's got to do something. It's, uh, it's Bert Baccarat. Somebody do something, please. And, um, but anyway, eventually he recovered and he, you know, and, and he laughed about it and joked about it. And I reminded it of him and said, oh, I went to see you last year, blah, blah. So for someone like that, I also think, because obviously my mum and dad loved his music and I, I kind of, we all did, we all did. But I grew up with a lot of that and I've sung some of his songs, not that he would know that, but I've sung some of his songs anyway, live and stuff. Um, and that was pretty amazing because it's like this guy has sung with, sorry, worked with some of the best singers in the world, some made some of the records that are just part of this rich tapestry that we all kind of just, you know, rely on. Um, and I'm singing for him and he's okay with it. 
He's all right with it. And that's that's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's to you, it's not to me. Okay, all right, okay. That's what but that's why I love you. Okay. I thank love you. it. I, yeah, okay, but I think I love how you consider that. But it's really important that you do. It's really important that you think that that's amazing. Yeah, okay. Well I, I think that's really easy to understand. Really easy to see why I feel that way about it. No, I do. But, yeah. No, I definitely do okay. see why you feel that way okay. about it. Yeah. But it you, you that doesn't amaze me. You know, you Bert Bacharach being okay with you singing for him, that I don't think I don't think that's amazing, but I get why you think it's amazing. Right. Which is entirely different. Yeah. Because you 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 know, only only you know what it feels like to be you and to you, you know, every you're just you're just a normal kid from Newton Willows. I think that's the thing, and I don't want to kind of use that in any way or kind of paint that picture exactly but there is still a part of me as i'm sure there is with every human on the planet but there definitely is with me even though i've had this very visible part of my life you know there's been a very public visible thing i am still that kid from newton willows who went to selwyn jones high school who had red hair and didn't want red hair through his teenage years and all the rest of it and i still have that every every moment i walk into a room where it could be whoever you know or it could be Burt Baccarat, or it could be walking out on stage to the Foo Fighters audience thinking, what the fuck's about to happen next? Or it could be, you know, I still have that thing for sure. And I'm part confident and part like, yeah, I can do this. Of course I can do this. But I'm also part like, I don't know, it's really weird. If you weren't amazed by it, then it would be wrong. But it would also be quite wrong if I was not, if I was amazed by it. Okay, I can't because, work. You've just confused me. No, I can't. Because, no, because, because if you weren't, you, if it didn't feel that special for you mm. to perform with Burt Backrack, mm. you know, Hal David, Burt Backrack, it doesn't mm. get any better than that, mm. does it? But you're Rick Astor. You, this is what you do for a living. That's what he does for a living. For me, that makes total sense. Okay, I see. Uh, okay, I do see. I get, uh, yes, but... I love the fact that you feel that way about it. Yeah. I'm going to be flat out honest here, and you can take this however way you want to take it, right? We met when we were about 21, I think. I must have been 21 because I was promoting a record, so I must have been. And you were up at what I think was Piccadilly, yeah, I think. Piccadilly. And I remember meeting you. And then the second time I met you, I don't know whether you remember this, it was on a double-decker bus on an outside broadcast somewhere. You were doing something. Do you remember that at all? Was it with Timmy? I can't remember. Yeah, right it, was. it was. Was it? It was with Timmy Mallet. And yeah. it was, at, um, it was the Piccadilly used to, they used to... They used to rent this um, double-decker bus that, right. that had an open roof. I can't remember the details of it, but I just remember it being a bus somewhere. It was up somewhere, what have you. And then, I don't think I saw you for a while, and then, obviously, and I can't remember radio-wise, what have you. But anyway, we moved forward a while, and you're a TV presenter, and it's really happening, and it's still a dirt. And then your career, obviously, blossomed and was massive. You you. Come on, let's make no bones about it. You were the probably the biggest TV presenter in the country for quite a while, I would say. Country Mile sort of thing. And I remember just sort of thinking, fuck. <laughs> no, no, thinking. I don't mean that. In a, please, I mean thinking. I'll say it again. Fuck. You know, we're from that little pocket of what have you. Yeah, man, that's that's pretty amazing. And, and, and I... I still have that about certain things and people and times and what have you. And you are one of them. And also the Simon Moran thing is a little bit like that as well. He's a guy from, I don't want to turn it into like a northerners convention. I'm just saying it's nothing to do with North. It could be Norfolk. It could be Cornwall. It's your little pocket of the world that you thought, how am I ever going to change my stars? How is that going to happen? And when I've seen other people around me do it, and like Gary Barlow as well, and, I'm th and I think, yeah, you can do it. 
Yeah. Getting emotional now. You can you can change your stars. You just got to dream big, you know. I love it. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, you know about Alex Higgins and um what's you that? really are tearing off, aren't you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, go on. What's I change the subject? Alex Higgins, go on. As in Hurricane Higgins. It's why are you tearing up? Because it, it's very emotional because I think I I wanted to escape a lot of my childhood and I managed it. And I and when I see certain other people I'm not saying everybody wanted to escape. Not everybody grew up with a, with a family that they were trying to sort of. I don't mean my brothers or my sister or my mum really, for that matter, or my dad even. But I just mean I wanted to escape that sort of unhappiness and that black cloud. And I wanted to do. And obviously, music was the way I did it, and I'm, and it was amazing. Um, I almost think if I would have had a talent for something else, it could have been anything. I think, and I sometimes look at other people and wonder what has driven them. And I don't want to, you know, that's not that's for you to answer on a different day. But it's it's. I sometimes think the things that drive people to get somewhere in life that is, you know, famous, um, really successful, da da da, you know, not. I don't want to call it run of the mill even, or not run of the mill because it's not it's not a, 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 a fair or a nice thing to say, but to sort of do something a bit out of the ordinary. I don't think it's always the passion of the music or the passion of being an actor or the passion of presenting and producing. You know, it's there's something else. And that seems pretty obvious in my 50s, but it certainly wasn't in my 20s. And I don't even think it was in my 30s. I think it started to sort of appear in my 40s that, like, what drives most people is other things. And that doesn't, that doesn't rob the actual thing, i.e. making music, of any of its... Um, sincerity or quality or anything i don't think it does at all um but you know when you when you think about the great painters you know the grand masters all the rest of it what drove them and i don't think it was just painting i really don't i think it's your emotions and therefore it's very easy to stir those emotions up when you start talking about how you got there you know it's a very powerful fuel it's the mm. most powerful fuel there is yeah you know and adversity is a great catalyst for that mm. it's a great you know yeah touch paper for yeah them. yeah yeah and again i've actually spoken to some um friends and, and friends kids sometimes um who are coming from situations where the family seems to be okay they've got money they've got security they've got all of that but they want to be in music and all the rest of it and i've kind of said don't ever feel hung up about having a comfortable whatever you don't have to have struggled to do, you know what I mean? You don't, you, you don't have to have a struggle in your home life to whatever. Because life will throw struggles at you wherever you're coming from. It doesn't matter whether you're rich, whether you're this, that, and the other. Life's going to throw some struggles at you. So you'll be able to write about stuff. Don't you worry about that. You know what I mean? And I think it's it's too easy to sort of sometimes say, well, oh, they had it tough. That's why they became successful. Do you know what I mean? No, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the mm. case. But I do think that adversity is a great driver. In, mm. in, in many ways, you know, if you end up okay you're very blessed to face adversity because, you know, it forces you to experience things. Mm. We were talking about this yesterday. My wife and I were talking about this. We were talking about broken people, mm. damaged, actually damaged. Because when, you know, when you're broken, you are broken and then you are damaged because you have been broken and you put yourself to get back together and you fix yourself. Um, and it's, we were saying that being damaged, you know, if you end up okay, of course, that is, you know, but being damaged is a blessing because if you are damaged, it's because something something extreme in your life has happened and you have felt life. You have felt, mm. you know, the rough edge of life. You know, it has rained and you you 
you got soaking wet and you didn't know whether the sun was ever going to shine again. Mm. And to be, you see other people that, that haven't been damaged mm. and dare I say, you know, um, have backed away from uh, adversity, chosen comfort, chosen convenience, chosen lack of risk. And you just get the sense that they haven't lived and you get the sense then as they get older that the seed of resentment has been sown. Mm. And what they, some people may end up doing is they, they end up resenting things and getting there's this sort of this anger inside them. And it's, it's anger at themselves because they didn't fucking, they've never taken a mm. chance. They don't know what it's like to be out there mm. on the wing. Because the point is, if you go past your, way beyond your comfort zone, if you go past the borders of your ability, you know you've gone past them, so you know they're there, and then you know where they are. So you know where your capacity is. And then for the rest of your life, you can enjoy mm. the, the the zone of your capacity and that's a great thing it's great to know how far you can spread yeah. your life mm. your being and that's a wonderful place mm. you know and you've been you it's, it's about knowing what it's feel what it feels like to be really fucking miserable yeah it's about being you know mm. to be miserable you go oh god anything anything is better than this mm. and then things get a lot better than that mm. you know and then, but then you have to try and it's like almost like being um, an air traffic controller when they flatline. So you get a two dimensional situation, which is being miserable and then feeling what it's like to be happy and then trying to, trying to sort of uh, then bring that into 3D and find out, right, what happened? Mm. What, what, what was that journey? And then, you, then if you can start to understand that, it becomes a tool, you know, and you, you, get, you get an amazing tool set. Mm. And then you can, and I think that that's why you're, you seem to be so happy now because yeah. you've discovered the tools. Well, you'd have to ask my wife that, but yeah, no, that's, I am. That's, I am. that's different. I, I am, you need different yeah. tools for that, Rick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a different podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, yeah, no, well, she, I mean, obviously she, we work together. She manages me and she has done now for six, seven years, I think. Um, so we've shared a lot of really great highs, but she also sees me at my lowest and she sees me go through some stupid panic about getting really worried about something um and you know wanting to kick things and all the rest of it and you know let off steam get angry whatever you want to call it and it's not nice and it's not pretty and it's pathetic to be honest it's like childlike behavior um and it's sort of it's not excusable but it sort of gets put into that frame of you know because i'm a heartist and i'm about to go on stage or what have you and that's it's bollocks really it's like get it together, you know what I mean? But it's it's sort of fear, I think, is what it is. It's it's not being able to control the fear of um embarrassment, um, you know, this is all gonna go wrong. Um and those are some of the things that also drive you, as I say, to get on a stage and give it everything. You know, it's a it's a bit of a thank God it's not real life, you know what I mean? And it is my real life actually, but I'm I'm sort of trying to um it is weird because it's um it's something you have to have a little check on every now and again. Um, but I lose myself in being a complete arsehole sometimes because I do get carried away in what I do. You know what I mean? Um, um, I don't know. I'm not explaining that very well. But I think I think I, I, I sort of genuinely completely forget the fact that I've ever been famous sometimes. If I'm in the supermarket, I don't expect people to recognize me. 
I don't. I, you know, I think somebody might do somebody, but it's not a big deal. It's not a whatever. It was back in 1988, you know what I mean, or whatever. Yeah, but it hasn't been like that for donkey's years. Um, but I somehow have to sort of then translate that to when we're going to go and do a gig, and it's my name on the ticket, and it's for thousands of people and what have you. I've got to think right. You're not in Tesco's now, son. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? I do. And <laughs> think that thought. Not that thought, but right. I might do from now on. I was going to say, like it, actually. please, yeah. please yeah. have that on whatever the last doorway is before you go yeah. through. On What's that tape, the white tape yeah. that they write on yeah. on flight cases? What's that yeah, tape? Yeah, uh, gaffer tape, yeah, yeah. Yeah, white yeah. gaffer tape. Mm. Remember, you're not in, in Tesco's, Tesco's now, son. No, awesome. But it, but it's it's... That's what this is called. This podcast is called okay, Rick you're not, Astley. You're, you're not, not in Tesco's now, son. Okay, Boom. We always go. get the title out of them in the end. Okay. Um, and I kind of, yeah, I don't know. I sort of, I, I do. To be honest, I actually do like thinking about it and obviously talking about it because I think it is a weird, um, a weird scenario to be in where, um you know you're really visible on the one end and then you're completely invisible on the other and it's just strange and um and wonderful and amazing and i've got to be honest if i think back to when i was <clears throat> you know like proper famous like recognizably instantly famous back in those Front few years famous. Yeah, back in those years when i had that for a few years um i wouldn't mind trying it for a for a long weekend or something because you know just be nuts and it'd be that'd be a ride to go on but there's no way I'd want that again in truth and reality because it doesn't suit me. It doesn't suit who I am, my personality or anything. But it's also a bit of a pain. And it's like where I am right now is pretty amazing that we, we get to gig on a good level where we've got a really pro band and a pro team of people in the crew and everything. And it all really works really well. And um, but, we're, but we're having fun with it. It's not like a we're not so precious about it that it's a nightmare. Do you know what I mean? We approach all of it with fun. So it's kind of a win-win in every respect of the game because it's we get we're doing it on a good level is what I'm saying. We're not playing like dive places, so we're doing it on a really good level, but we're also kind of enjoying it in terms of um, yeah. I think I don't know because you know like you you sometimes you hear stories and you can see it in people sometimes that they get so serious about who they are in their own career and their their moment in what they mean to the world and everything. And um, I don't know. I just, anyway, I just know that I'm not in that, in that zone. And um, I don't, I don't think I'd want to be really. Maybe I'm saying that because I know I never will be, but I just, I don't want, I don't want to be. Well, it doesn't work. Yeah. You've been there to be honest. Yeah. I've had a little go at it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Taking, yeah. I've taken myself far too seriously mm. for far too long, mm. you know, didn't work. Mm. Most miserable person. Well, I made a lot of other people miserable. I would imagine along the way, and mm. but I pretty much did myself into. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think that one of the reasons I see, you know, when you perform, you have the audience in the palm of your hand, and that's because mm. they know that you are there a hundred percent, and they know they can't believe you. You 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 look like you've never been more the kid from Newtony Willows, right? Being given his dream job mm. at sixteen, it yeah. just happens that you're fifty-four. Yeah, well, I think I think that's good, a good, a good analogy actually, or a good way of looking at it in terms of. I think if I'd actually, um, you look like the kid on stage now. You just happen to be fifty-four. Right. It's interesting. 
You've got that ch- ch- and when you talk about it, your eyes light up. It's brilliant. It's, mm. your, uh, our eyes are ageless. Well, they're not ageless, but you, you, they can they can go mm. back in time and they can go forward. Mm. But you get up there and you are like, what is it? The, what's that phrase? The pig that got the, I don't know, like pig in shit is one. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The cat that got the cream. The cat that got the cream. It's various, yeah. That's what you look yeah. like when you're on stage. Yeah, and I do feel it. I it's do. As, it's as if Stock Aiken and Waterman yeah. never happened and you've just left school and you just happened to have nailed it. I think I think the thing is, and, and again, I do want to say this on the record because I don't have any regrets of, of you know, working with Stock Aiken Waterman and the whole thing with Pete and how he was and, you know, in terms of, very, very well they, they all were actually very very honed in on exactly the way they wanted things to be in their records and everything and, and, and their process well what about this then right what about you had embraced it then yeah right you wouldn't have got to have this now because you wouldn't have had redemption call it what you want second coming well exactly yeah you'd rather have you'd rather have a happier fulfilled middle age and oh my crack God, yeah. right on oh yeah so yeah, you yeah. did do you you felt like you got it wrong because you didn't embrace it. You did this. You didn't mm. do that. But it's, it's time. Time proves that it was the right way around. It may not have seemed it at the time. Yeah, and and again, I think because of what I don't want to do. I don't. I don't want anybody to hear this and think that like I didn't like it. I hated it. I wish it because that's not the case. It's just I felt a bit out of my own skin. And and to be honest, you've said it that you recognised it and other people did. And I think think people who might have been fans of me and bought the records thought, well, I love these records because I like you know that kind of music and I like his voice and I quite like his quiff, Mrs. Um, but <laughs> he doesn't look happy all the time, does he? You know what I mean? I think I think even fans probably thought oh, they that maybe. No, everybody, yeah. everybody knows everything. They, yeah. Everybody yeah. knows everything, but sometimes they just don't know they know it. Yeah, this is a great phrase that I like, and it said, if you if you if you want to guarantee a happy ending mm-hmm. in your life, then it's not about how it ends, it's about when you end it. And, mm. you know, it wasn't perfect, mm. right? Mm. But it was a chapter. Mm. And I'm sure that uh, there there were points within that five years when you could have ended it and it, it would have had a happy ending. But it's not about that. That's not how life is. No. And I totally agree that, you, you know, whichever analogy you want to use, but the thing about... You do only learn from the hard times, the mistakes, the bad times, the downsides. You do. Um, I think yeah, when you are going through misery and, and you are down and you what have you, um, I still have that 10% of me that can say, just wallow in it for a while and it will get better and something will turn around. And for instance, I don't think my dad could do that. And that does scare me at times. I don't think he could. I think when he was down and miserable, that was it. And there was nothing... There was no silver lining. There was nothing, and I think, I think that has stayed with me a little bit. So I'm wary of it because my my go-to is just watch Zulu or Gladiator or, or even better Spartacus, eat chocolate digestives and drink tea all day, and by the end of the day, it will have changed. That's my <laughs> that's my advice for you folks. Oh, this this yeah. too will pass, you know. And Churchill mm. said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Can you just give a couple of words to any buddy musicians who are listening wow. and also i'll tell you what before we go yeah. we'll, we'll stop soon before we go you know you've missed out on your tour this year lots of other people have yes, you know yeah. think about jules Hon. they live on the road the, yeah, yeah. the jules Hon is is, is um, the jules Hon orchestra mm. the rhythm and blues orchestra yeah, yeah. sorry um but some bands like we had we had sports team in a couple mm. of weeks ago playing live for us right mm. 
they have just released their debut album. Yeah, I they're mean, twenty-five, twenty-six. This is such an important year for them, and they're not going to get that year. Oh. So let's talk. Let's just speak to those a little bit and speak to somebody who's at home or wherever they are, and they think they've got a tune or two in them, maybe for the future. Well, I mean, I think one of the things some of the greatest lyrics have come from, you know, some of the downtimes, some of the bad times, and what have you. Um, and maybe that is something that people can draw on. But I also think that younger people are going through it. We're all going through it, but young people are going through something that is just a, a proportionally is a is a big part of their lives. One thing for me is that I still walk into this room, and I don't know it at the time. But uh, I may be feeling the best I've ever felt after being in this room for a little while and making some music. Or I may have to leave and make a cup of tea and eat some biscuits because, <laughs> because it's, it's made me cry as well. Oh, right. But there's a, there's a sort of a joy in the crying right. as well. Um, and I think you've got to try and aim for that. You've got to, you've got to aim for real emotion in, in, in the music you're making because if you've got real emotion when you're making it and in the writing of it and the, and the making of the actual record or the whatever you want to call that today, um, hopefully that will stay with you throughout the life of that music. And I can speak with some authority on this subject. Um, if you do manage to crack it with a song, it'll stay with you forever. So you better be sure that you're going to be able to be comfortable with it for the rest of your life. What, Bicky, do you go to... Um, what, what Bicky stopped you crying quickest? Well, when I was in Tesco's <laughs> recently, Chris, <laughs> um, a Jaffa is hard to go wrong I with. It's not everyone's cake. cake, not everyone's cup is of tea. Is it a biscuit or is it a cake? This is the thing you see. I almost said cake then. Um, and also because it doesn't feel very heavy when you're eating it. So you can eat three or four and still not feel like, you know what I mean? But I, I'm a bit of a biscuit fiend, to be honest. And it's weird because Lena, my wife, doesn't like anything sweet at all, really. So, um, I can eat any kind of biscuits, really, but I do like a dark chocolate digestive as well. Thing is, I'm very, I'm very. I once said in an interview that I like twirls, and then people started throwing twirls at me on stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, got to be careful, really. Now they do an orange twirl now. I saw this on on Howard's, funnily enough, and take that's um, what's it? His Instagram. <laughs> and I'm like, is he has he had that made? Is this real? Yeah, or is they're, he... got, they're absolute. I can't eat them anymore, but they're stunning. Wow, stunning okay. bit of kit. There you go. All right. There you go. Great to talk to you. And you, my love. I love Rick Astley. I want to be his friend. Wasn't he great? Okay, you've been listening to How to Wow, starring that man. He ain't Gasly. He is Rick Astley. And he and this show is brought to you by M&S. Plan Kitchen. Plan Kitchen. Creators of the showstopper in any kitchen, the Plant Kitchen Cauliflower Popcorn. Just £3.30 will turn you into super mum or dad as far as your kids are concerned. Mini cauliflower florets are coated in a fluffy batter that's gorgeously crisp on the outside while the cauliflower stays tender within. Simply bake in the oven until golden. Then serve with a sweet and spicy buffalo dip and an ice cold beer. Obviously not for the kids. That's for the grown-ups. But wait for them to cool down because they come out piping hot. How do I know? Because it's almost all I ever eat nowadays. And if that ain't a sell, I don't know what is. Thank you, MS Plant Kitchen. Proud sponsors of How to Wow. Please rate and subscribe.